Okay, so for our next session here, I get to talk about my specialty field of astronomy, which is always fun. And it's it, something that pains me is that, that science has been misused by secularists to try and persuade people that the Bible's not true. It's, it's one of the, uh, whoa, okay. That's one of the, the uh, main reasons I founded the Biblical Science Institute is I wanna show people that science confirms the Bible. And in fact, the Bible is the foundation for scientific reasoning and logical reasoning and, and morality and so on. But especially in my specialty field of astronomy, uh, there's something wonderful about the universe that really speaks to the majesty of our creator. And it's, it's just a shame that people have been, that's, that the science of astronomy and other sciences have been misused to try and persuade people, oh no, the universe has kind of exploded into existence in a big bang billions of years ago. That's how everything came about. I cannot believe that that is taken seriously, honestly. That the, the idea that the universe just kind of exploded into existence, really? Uh, no, God, God, God did make the universe. And what we'll see, what I want to show you today is that when we, we explore the secrets of the cosmos, they really do confirm biblical creation. They confirm what the Bible teaches. And there are five secrets of the universe that we're going to cover today. We're going to cover the, the first aspect is that the Bible talks about the glory of the Lord being revealed in the heavens. And I think I can show you that. I think you can show you that the heavens really do declare God's glory, not a big bang, not billions of years. We're going to see how the basics of astronomy that are touched upon in Scripture. The, yes, the Bible does touch on astronomy. That's not its main point, but when it touches on it, it's accurate. And these would be things that you would learn in any freshman-level astronomy class. When the Bible speaks to those issues, it's exactly right, and we have confirmation today. We're going to see that the Bible is right when it addresses the issue of the age of the universe. The Bible does teach thousands of years, and we're going to see that the scientific evidence confirms that. It does line up with Scripture. We're going to see that the uniqueness of the earth that the Bible talks about is confirmed by science as well. So the Bible got that right. And then we're going to deal with the issue of distant starlight and how God might have got the light from those galaxies to the earth. And we're going to see the Bible is right about that as well. So the take home is the Bible is right. When it touches on any topic, it would have to be as the word of God. It would have to be, it would have to be right on any topic on which it touches. People have said, but the Bible is not an astronomy textbook. It's not a science textbook. That's true. Because science textbooks change every few years when we learn that we weren't right about some things. Like, like Pluto's not a planet anymore, for, exa for example. <laughs> but uh, no, the Bible never has to be updated because God got it right the first time. And so everything it touches on is right. And when the Bible touches on science, which it occasionally, occasionally does, it's right. It's right. And so, let's dive right in. See how the glory of the Lord's revealed in the cosmos? And, wow, you don't have to be an astrophysicist to appreciate the majesty of the Lord as revealed in the heavens. And it's, it's wonderful these days. We have these wonderful Hubble images. I'm going to show you some of these where we can see the incredible beauty of the universe and the incredible size of the universe. The Bible does say that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. And I'm going to argue that there are at least a couple of ways in which the universe declares God's glory. The size and the beauty of the universe. Now, those are not the only two attributes, but if I talked about every attribute of God revealed in the universe, we'd be here for millions of years. So we don't want to do that. Um, I'm just going to focus in on the size and the beauty of the universe. And again, the beauty of the universe, you don't have to be an astrophysicist to appreciate that. I think one of the things that attracted me to the field of astronomy was just it's, it's unbelievably beautiful. The heavens are stunning. And uh, we'll, I'll show you some images of that. 
But keep in mind the size of these things too. And that's something that I don't think, even if you do have a PhD in astrophysics, you can fully grasp. I mean, we, I can write down numbers using scientific notation that indicates the size of some of these things and the distances involved. But to really grasp them, it's beyond my comprehension. And that gives us a little window into the mind of God. I'm sorry we're experiencing technical difficulties. He, we're, I think he's back there casting out the demons in the system, but apparently this kind comes out only by prayer and fasting. Anyway, um, <laughs> we'll start with the moon. The moon is about the same size as the United States. So as you appreciate the beauty of these objects, keep in mind the scale of them. This is one of the smaller objects we'll be looking at. So about the size of the United States. If you put the United States up at the same distance as the moon, it would cover about the same area in the sky. That gives you kind of a feel for it. And the moon is a lot of fun to look at in a small telescope. This is actually a mosaic image of the moon. So it's, it's very high resolution images that have been stitched together. And that's why the, the color balance is a little different in some places, depending on uh, how the sunlight was hitting it and so on. So we actually have a spacecraft orbiting the moon, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, taking high resolution images of the surface. And so we have these wonderful um, mosaic images of the moon. And I love looking at the moon through a small telescope. And I really like showing other people the moon through its small telescope because they usually look at it and they go, wow, that's cool. It just looks neat, especially when it's in the first quarter phase, when it's illuminated right down the middle because then you can see the craters very clearly. When it's full, like it is here, you can't see the craters uh, very well because the sun is shining right down in them and you don't see the shadows of those craters. But uh, nonetheless, uh, it's, it's astonishingly beautiful. And a lot of times people ask when they're looking through, you know, they're looking at the moon, that's, that's all, and they say, can you see the flag? that the astronauts planted. No, you can't see the flag. When you, uh, when you consider that this is as large as the United States, you're not going to see something as small as a flag, right? But uh, the interesting thing is with the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, we do have, it is actually able to see the places where the astronauts landed. And uh, <laughs> any luck? We're going to swap out mics here? Okay. I think this is amazing, but you can actually see the lower portion of the lunar module. Remember when they when they landed and they took off, they they left the bottom portion of the lander to save fuel. The that spider-like looking structure, right? They left the legs and they just took off the the top portion, and so that's still there on the moon, along with some instruments that they left on the surface of the moon. And if you can see that see that dark streak that goes over there, like that and back. That's the footprints of the astronauts as they walked over to that crater and back. So, uh, 40-year-old footprints, and uh, and they're not going anywhere anytime soon because it was uh, there's there's no there's no weather on the moon. There's no air, and so there's no wind, and so dust simply accumulates. There's no maid service, so <laughs> those footprints will be there for a very long time. Pretty amazing, isn't it? So, for those of you that don't believe we landed on the moon, well, there you go. There it is. We have pictures now. The scale of the cosmos is as amazing as its beauty. And so again, keep in mind the moon, about the size of the United States. That's the way the moon looks best is when it's in that first quarter phase illuminated right down the middle and you can see the craters. And it's fun to look at in a telescope because it's interesting because your, your brain can figure out instantly that it's a, that it's a sphere. 
right? It's not like a flat day. When it's full, it looks kind of flat. But when it's in that first quarter phase, due to the illumination of the craters, your brain immediately is able to figure out that it's spherical. You don't even have to think about it. And so it's not only the beauty of the moon that the Lord created, but the ingenuity that the Lord has designed in our brain and in our senses to be able to figure out shapes like that. Uh, quite fascinating. So here's the moon compared to the earth. So it gives you a feel for the size of it. And what a privilege that we live in a time where we have seen our planet from above. You ever thought about that? Because our ancestors could only have imagined that. And what, what a wonderful time we live in where we can see this beautiful gem of a planet. And it is beautiful. The earth is really stunning. And you might think, well, yeah, we, 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 we're the winner there because we're, we're quite a bit bigger than the moon. The earth's pretty big. And it is until you compare it to Saturn. And uh, Saturn's about nine Earths across, and that's just the planet. The, the rings, which are trillions of tiny little moonlets that orbit around uh, Saturn's equator, Right, and so those um, that this form that ring that lovely ring system is stunning to see in a telescope, and what a lesson in perspective, because when you see Saturn in a small telescope, it just looks like this little gem, this little jewel that you want to just pluck it out and stick in your pocket and take it home with you, but you can't because it's nine Earths across, and uh, it looks so tiny because it's a billion miles away, and that just gives you well, what a lesson in perspective. I mean, amazing to think about these sorts of things, and that's something that's always fascinated me about astronomy. And you think, well, okay, but you know, Earth's not that big, but Saturn, we got a big planet in our solar system, right? But Saturn's pretty small compared to the sun, for example. The sun is over 100 Earths across. The sun is basically a stable nuclear bomb, hydrogen bomb, fusing hydrogen in the middle in a way that's very stable and secure. And so it, the sun, and, and by the way, hydrogen fusion is a very efficient power source. The sun actually releases more energy into space in one second than a billion major cities on earth could use in an entire year. And you'd say, well, why would God be wasteful like that? God has unlimited power. And so it's not a problem for him at all. And you consider that the sun is just one star. Yes, there's other objects that you see in the night sky are the same type of object that the sun is. The sun is a main sequence star, meaning it obeys a, main sequence means it obeys a rule where if you know the mass of the star, that will determine all of its other major characteristics, its size, its its brightness, its uh, its temperature, its surface color, and everything. So so main sequence stars that are the same mass as the sun look about like the sun. They're the same size, same color, and so on. Uh, the color is based on surface temperature. Stars like the sun that are yellow, yellow white, have a surface temperature of about six thousand degrees Celsius. So pretty toasty. Stars that are less massive than the sun, if they're main sequence stars, they'll be red dwarfs. So you'd say, yeah, you know, we got, at least we got a, you know, the Earth's not that big, and apparently Saturn's not that big, but at least we got a pretty big star. And the, and the sun is larger than the, than the majority of stars in the universe, because the majority of stars in the universe are red dwarfs. But there are stars that are bigger than the sun, like Mintaka, for example. Now keep in mind, the, the sun is 100 Earths across. So keep that in mind as we explore Stars like Mintaka, which is a blue supergiant, that's one of the stars of Orion's belt that you see in the winter sky. So it's amazing that that's even bigger than the sun and much brighter. And you think, well, why does it look like a little tiny pinprick of light? Because it's really far away. The sun is relatively close. It's a mere 93 million miles away. So it's, it's our next door neighbor. By the way, how long would it take to drive 93 million miles? It takes over 150 years. That's without stopping for bathroom breaks. So isn't that amazing? Then you get Canopus, 
which uh, you can't really see that from Idaho, but you can get down to Texas, you can see it. It's a white supergiant. And look how, look how big it is compared. So here's the sun, which is 100 Earths across. Look at Canopus. Astonishing. But there are stars bigger than Canopus. Antares, for example, which is over 600 suns across. Amazing. And you work that out, the sun, you know, the sun's over 100 Earths across. You work it out, it's really, really big. Yeah, really big. And it's got these little spots on it. Those are cooler regions. Uh, star spots where they, they're just not quite as bright as the rest of the star. So, and, and it, just amazing. And if you think about, well, why do they look so small? Well, just consider the distances. The distances are outrageous. Now, some stars are like the sun. They're kind of by themselves. Some stars come in binary pairs where you have two stars or three or four. And occasionally you'll get a cluster of stars where you have a bunch of stars together, like this globular star cluster. I love these things. These are so beautiful. And I, I, even the picture doesn't really capture the beauty of it. When you see these with your own eyes in a telescope and you're actually seeing the light from these stars, it's, they're stunningly beautiful. There's perhaps 100,000 stars in that cluster. And there are several hundred of these clusters that orbit kind of around the center of our galaxy. So M80 is just one of those uh, clusters. I love looking at globular clusters. They're some of my favorite objects to look at in the night sky. Quite beautiful. And it reminds me of that verse that says that God calls them all by their names. So God has a name for each and every one of those stars. We don't, <laughs> but God does. Some of my favorite objects in the universe are nebulae. A nebula is, nebula means cloud, it's Latin for cloud. And it looks like a cloud, but it's not a cloud of water vapor like an Earth's sky. It's a cloud of hydrogen and helium gas. Now that's the same stuff that stars are made of, but stars are hydrogen gas compacted into a sphere held together by their own gravity. Yes, gas has gravity, and it, it's mutual. Attraction holds it together. Whereas a nebula is spread out over a vast region of space, and its gravity would be minimal because it, it's enormous. And a nebula like this, our solar system would not even show up on this image, our entire solar system, all the planets and sun and everything, because it's enormous. And sometimes you'll have a star cluster nearby, like you, so you get two for the price of one there, which is kind of neat. And Now, some nebulae are relatively relatively small. They're only about the size of the solar system. And these are called planetary nebulae. And in planetary nebulae, you have a star in the middle and it's ejecting gas, usually out the north and south poles of the star. They call that a bipolar planetary nebulae. And uh, some of them are round. And so here's some pictures of planetary nebulae. It has nothing to do with planets. It's just a, it's just a name. And so you have the star in the middle ejecting gas. Sometimes they're round and it could be the round ones are also bipolar with the two lobes, but maybe we're looking right down the barrel. Right? We don't know. We can't get another angle on it. And we're not likely to anytime soon. So there you go. My favorite, the Ring Nebula, because it was the first that I learned how to find. You can see this in a, in a small backyard telescope. And it's not too far away from the star Vega. Uh, easy to find in a small telescope. And it's so weird. It, and it's, it, I mean, it looks like that. It looks like a gray version of that. Because when you're out at night, you're, you're not using your, your cones, your color vision as much. You're using mostly your grayscale, your rods. And, uh, but nonetheless, it looks like a little glowing smoke ring. And it's so weird. Most places in space, you just see stars and stars and stars. There's this one little sweet spot where you'll see a glowing smoke ring. And it's so strange to see this little cosmic Cheerio suspended on nothing, hanging there in space. And, uh, and you're expecting it to sort of expand. And it is expanding. It's just, it's just you don't notice it very much in a human lifetime. So the star that made it is now collapsed in on itself, that, that little white dwarf. So it's no longer uh, producing energy. It's just releasing the energy it already has. So all these objects that we've looked at, stars, planets, moons, and so on, nebulae, clusters, are a part of a much larger structure called a galaxy. And so we live in one of these 
galaxies. Ours looks something like that. It's a spiral galaxy with those wonderful arms. So what you're seeing there is the combined light of about 100 billion stars. 100 billion stars. Amazing. And uh, we, we've been able to see these since uh, really the 1700s. We had telescopes powerful enough to see these spiral structures. But it, early on, they thought these were small and within our galaxy. And then by the early 1900s, they realized that uh, these, in fact, are other galaxies out there with hundreds of billions of stars like, like ours. So we're in one of these, and then we can see others by looking through ours because ours is mostly transparent, so we can see out. So pretty stunning. All kinds of galaxies out in the universe. They're galaxies of tremendous beauty. There are galaxies of tremendous ugliness. Yeah. <laughs> there are galaxies with large, mysterious arrows next to them. <laughs> You'll see this in all the textbooks, too. There are galaxies that have rings of stars surrounding them. Isn't that interesting? There are galaxies that look like flying saucers. Yes, that's a real galaxy. They call that the Sombrero Galaxy. You can see why. And you can see that in a small telescope, including that dark dust lane that blocks the light from the stars behind it. That's a, fun, that's a fun galaxy to look at. It's part of the uh, Virgo supercluster, easily visible in the spring, springtime, if you, know, if you know where to look. There are galaxies in the process of collision where the stars just, if you think about the distances between the stars, the stars would all pass by each other. The chances of any two stars colliding are remote. So these galaxies will pass harmlessly through each other. Galaxies upon galaxies, as we go deeper into space, you find galaxies come in clusters. So that's a cluster of galaxies. Each one of those little fuzzy specks you see, there, those are not stars. Those are galaxies with 100 billion stars each, some more, some less. Got even deeper into space, about as far out as we can look with Hubble, galaxies upon galaxies upon galaxies at tremendous distances, fully formed, fully designed spiral galaxies in some cases, as well as some ellipticals and peculiars, but a lot of spirals. Look at this. So those are not stars. Those are galaxies with hundreds of billions of stars each all spoken into existence by God. That's pretty awesome. Think about the power that's involved. Remember I told you our sun releases more energy in a second than a billion major cities could use in a year? And our sun's just one star. There's, there are stars that are a thousand times brighter than the sun, 10,000 times brighter than the sun. Our galaxy has 100 billion stars, and we think there's at least 100 billion galaxies in the universe. That's a lot of power, isn't it? That's pretty awesome. A little taste into God's power. Of course, he's infinitely powerful, so it's not a problem. He spoke and they leapt into existence, all created in six days. In fact, what you're seeing here was created in one day, day four, because God spent five of the six creation days working the earth, making it right for life. He took one day off, day four, and made everything else, almost as an afterthought. Like, you know what would go really good with an earth? How about 100 billion galaxies? Why not, right? And I love the way the Bible describes the creation of those hundreds of billions of galaxies. It's summed up in this little phrase, he made the stars also. Isn't that awesome? What a lesson in perspective. Truly the heavens declare the glory of God. I hope you can see that. I think it's obvious. I suppose it's easier to believe in a chance Big Bang universe if you don't know much about it. But if you understand the universe and its beauty and its majesty, you recognize it as the handiwork of the Lord. What about the basics of astronomy? Things you learn in any freshman level astronomy class. The Bible does address those issues and when it addresses them, it does so properly. Even when the science of the time uh, would have been contrary to that. Yes, there are passages of scripture that accurately touch on astronomy where the scientists at the time that the passage was written would have disagreed and now they have egg on their face because the Bible's right and they were wrong. Let me give you some examples of this. The spherical nature of the earth. Yes, the Bible does teach around earth in multiple ways. 
Isaiah 40, 22 talks about the circle of the earth. And you say, well, that, that could be a flat disk. It could refer to the earth's orbit around the sun. So I don't think that's a proof text. But nonetheless, there's a circularity there. However, the Job 26, 10 passage, I don't think you can get around that any other way than to say the earth's a sphere. Because it says that God inscribes a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. Now, that boundary between light and darkness is where, what we call the terminator. That's where light stops or terminates, sunlight stops or terminates. And the only way you can get a circle for a terminator is to have a spherical planet. In any other shape, it won't, it won't always be a, a circle. And it's on the face of the waters because the Earth's surface is mostly water. So it's a wonderful passage indicating the sphericity of the Earth. Or for that matter, the global flood indicates the Earth is a sphere, right? Because the Bible says all the high hills that were under the whole heavens were covered with water. And you can't do that on a flat disc because the water run off the sides, right? So you can't have that. Or you say, well, there's a lip around the edge that holds the water in. But then that itself would constitute a hill that is not covered by the waters. So uh, the only way you can have a global flood is on a globe. So the Bible does teach in multiple ways a spherical earth. And it's interesting to me, too, because if you look in most textbooks, most astronomy textbooks will credit Pythagoras with being the first to come up with the idea that the Earth might be round. We don't know if he made an argument for it. Uh, most of his beliefs are not recorded directly. They were recorded by his followers. Aristotle is usually considered the first to prove that the world is round by uh, the fact that uh, the shadow of the Earth on the moon during a lunar eclipse is always circular. That's a proof of the sphericity of the Earth. The fact that you can see the mast of a ship before the ship as it comes into a shore is an indication of the sphericity of the uh, of the earth. But I think it's interesting because Pythagoras is 500 BC, Aristotle's 300 BC, Isaiah's 700 BC, Job we think is around 2000 BC. So my point is the Bible is speaking to the issue of the sphericity of the earth long before the secularists figured it out. Back when the Greeks thought the world was flat, the Bible's teaching it's round. Isn't that interesting? That's very interesting, I think. By the way, the idea that Christopher Columbus proved the world is round is a myth. People, educated people already knew the world was round at the time of Columbus. He just thought it would be faster to go that way, which it turns out it isn't. But I'm glad he made the trip. <laughs> earth is suspended in space. Job 26, 7 says that God hangs the earth upon nothing. A beautiful poetic description of the nature of gravity. God literally hangs the earth on nothing. What a wonderful description of gravity. might have been hard to believe when it was written back in 2000 BC, because even by the 800s to 900 BC, the Greeks and the Babylonians thought that the earth was a flat disk and floated in water. And doesn't that make more sense? We've seen things float in water. Our common experience, our intuition says, yes, things can float in water, but they can't, you can't hang something on nothing, as if God were hanging the earth like a Christmas tree ornament, but hanging it on nothing. But we have pictures now that confirm the Bible is exactly right. The Greek experts of the day are what we call wrong. Yeah. Expansion of the universe. The Bible teaches that God stretched out or stretches out the heavens as a curtain, spreads them out as a tent to dwell in. It's mentioned a number of places in Scripture, uh, many places. And it wasn't discovered by scientific means until the 1920s, really, when uh, Edwin Hubble and others, uh, by measuring redshifts of galaxies, found that everything's sort of moving away from everything else, as if the entire universe is just being stretched out, getting bigger. How about that? And I find this one really remarkable because... In order to discover this by scientific means, it really takes modern technology. You can't see the expansion of the universe just with your naked eye. You go outside tonight and you look up. Well, it'll be cloudy tonight, but you go out on a clear night and look up. You go out the next night and look up. The universe looks about the same size. It doesn't look like it's being stretched out or getting bigger. And yet, we know from redshifts of galaxies that it is. 
You need modern technology to discover that. You need telescopes and spectroscopes. Telescopes invented in the uh, in 1608. Spectroscopes were invented, I think, 1700s. But the Bible records this fact in the 700s BC. I think there's even a passage in Job, which again is 2000 BC. It talks about the stretching out of the heavens. It's almost as if the Hebrews had some kind of divine insight into this issue. Isn't that fascinating? And of course they did. And by the way, people ask, well, does this mean a big bang, right? Because if the universe is getting bigger, then you run it backwards. Doesn't that mean that everything, you know, came from a point that it itself exploded into existence 13.8 billion years ago? The answer is no. Just because something is expanding doesn't mean it exploded into existence 13.8 billion years ago. Some of you are expanding. That doesn't mean you exploded into existence 13.8 billion years ago. It just means you're a little bigger now than you used to be. And that's a problem all too common to all of us. But uh, in any case, apparently God made the universe with size and he stretched it out since then. Because the earth was already in the universe when God first made it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So it was already there and then God stretched it out since then. It was never zero size. That's an irrational extrapolation to say that because it's bigger now, it must, if it, it must have been zero at some point. That doesn't follow logically. Now, some people have said, but does this at least count as a successful prediction of the Big Bang? Because didn't the Big Bang predict that the universe would be expanding? And there it is. So isn't that confirmation of the theory? And the answer is no, because the expansion of the universe was discovered in the 1920s. The Big Bang came along as an explanation for that in 1931. 1931 is when Lemaitre came up with the idea that the universe was once a point that, that bloomed into, uh, into its current size much later. So it's not a prediction, it's a post-diction. The Big Bang is a naturalistic explanation for this expansion that is, right, that is rightly attributed to God in, in Scripture. So it's not a Big Bang. It just means the universe is bigger than it used to be. Conservation of energy and mass. This one's a little more abstract, but I believe the Bible teaches the amount of stuff in the universe, the amount of energy, the amount of mass is constant. Einstein tells us mass and energy really are the same thing, just measured in two different ways. And the amount of stuff is constant because... God is not creating anymore, right? And God is not destroying that which he created. So the Bible tells us that all things were made by him and that God finished his work of creation by the seventh day. And so we would expect no new material is going to come into existence because it would either mean God is still creating, which cannot be because he ended his work by the seventh day, or it would mean that something could come into existence apart from God, which cannot be because all things were made by him. So nothing new is going to pop into existence and nothing is going to cease to exist because God upholds what he made and by him all things consist or hold together. So God is not going to allow material to disappear. Now he does allow us to change uh, material. We can transform matter into other forms and so on. But the amount of stuff is constant. And those principles together are the conservation of energy or the conservation of mass. Uh, James Joule is usually credited with the discovery of conservation of energy by doing uh, experiments with... Uh, you know, collisions of, of, of billiard balls and things like that. He was able to measure the energy going in and the energy coming out, and they're the same. And so he's credited with discovering conservation of energy. But he was a Christian, and he, he in his writings, he pointed out that, well, it makes sense that energy would be conserved because God is not creating anymore. So you see how good science really comes out of a Christian worldview. If, you, if you're thinking biblically, you're going to tend to make correct conclusions from the data. So... His, uh, his Christianity did not hinder his science. It helped it. It helped him to make discoveries. The uncountable numbers of stars. The Bible describes Abraham's descendants as being as the stars of heaven or as the sand which is upon the seashore, which uh, indicates a humanly uncountable number. And one passage even says that. It says, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So it's a, it's a great metaphor 
It's a great metaphor. It might have been hard to believe when it was written. Because or it might have not seemed like a great metaphor when it was written. Because the number of stars you can see, naked eyes, a few thousand. Somewhere between 3,000 or if you have superb vision, 10,000 stars if you stay up all night and count them all. In terms of those stars that are within the range of human vision. And so you might say, well, I mean, that's okay, that's okay as an analogy, but, but I mean, you could have done better. Sand on the seashore, yeah, that's uncountable. But the number of stars, I could, I could count to 3,000. I mean, it would be tedious, but I could do it. And then the telescope was invented. And in 1610, Galileo pointed his telescope up, up at the Milky Way, that cloudy band, and realized, oh, that's 100 billion or more stars. And you can't count to 100 billion in your lifetime. So, and that's just one galaxy. There are other galaxies out there. So uh, it's a great analogy. It's a great analogy. And one that we can appreciate even more now. I, I mean, it, it would have been understandable at the time. Don't get me wrong. God wrote the Bible to be understandable. But sometimes as, as science comes along and, can, and, and gives us additional insight into the scriptures, that makes, them, that makes us appreciate them even more. And I think we have an example of that right here. So do you get the point? Have we learned the lesson of history? Have we learned that whenever the Bible touches on astronomy, it's always right, even if the experts of the day disagree, the Bible turned out to be right in all those cases. Yes, the Bible was speaking about a round earth when most people did not believe it. The Bible was talking about conservation of energy before anyone believed that. The Bible was talking about expansion of the universe back in a time when most people thought the universe was static and unchanging. The Bible's talking about uncountable numbers of stars long before we had telescopes to observe that. Isn't that fascinating? And so those people who said, well, the Bible can't be right about a spherical earth because our best experts say it's flat and is supported by water. It floats in water. They're wrong, and they've got egg on their face today. The Bible was right. It always is. Have we learned a lesson of history? I've got to tell you, most people haven't. Because there are people who say, yes, I'll, I'll grant you the Bible got those things right somehow. But nonetheless, we now know that the Bible is wrong about this, that, and the other. And one of the main things they say is that the Bible is wrong about the age of the universe because the universe is said to be 13.8 billion years old. Actually, that was last month. The current estimate is 12 to 13 billion years because they re-estimated the Hubble constant. But anyway, it's supposed to be billions of years old. But the fact is, the Bible is right when it speaks to the age of the universe. God creating in six days... And the indications are that was a few thousand years ago. And what I want to show you is that there's actually many lines of scientific evidence that confirm the biblical time scale. And so we'll cover just a few of these today. Yes, God, God did create in six days. We covered this in the last session. We know those are ordinary days from context. Evening, each one's bounded by an evening and morning. So they're not symbolic or anything like that. They really are literal days. And that was a few thousand years ago, something like 6,000. Know, people say, well, could it be 7,000? Okay, maybe, but it's not going to be millions or billions. That's the point. And so it's... Uh, we, we see, for example, evidence that is consistent with that. For example, the internal heat of the giant planets. Jupiter actually gives off twice as much energy as it gets from the sun. So think about that. So every second, Jupiter is absorbing one unit of energy from the sun, and it's giving away two. Take in one, spend away two. Take in one, spend away two. It's kind of like the federal government, right? <laughs> so, and like the federal government, it can't do that forever. Because eventually you run out of energy, right? So Jupiter is constantly losing energy to space, and um, it can't do that for billions of years. It should be an icicle by now if it were really billions of years old. It's kind of like you take a, a potato out of the microwave. You just heated it up. You can feel the heat coming off of it, right? You put your hands close to it, you can feel it, because it's radiating that heat into space. Now, if you come back two hours later, 
It's cold, isn't it? Because it's lost all that energy to space. Now, Jupiter is a much bigger potato. It's uh, 10 times the size of the Earth in diameter. So it can radiate for thousands of years, and it's still got energy to spare. But if it were billions of years old, it really should have run out of energy a long time ago. The problem's even worse for little Neptune. Neptune's only four times the size of the Earth. And so it's, and it's actually giving off 2.6 to 2.7 times as much energy as it receives from the sun. And so it is, because it's smaller, it can't hold as much energy. So batteries run down with time. So how do you, how do you still, how do they still have heat after all this time? By the way, a lot of planets do that. Earth does that too. But with Earth, they try and explain it by radioactive decay, which it might be sensible. Radioactive decay gives off heat. But Jupiter and Neptune don't have radioactive elements in any abundance. They're made of the lighter stuff, hydrogen and helium mostly. So it's not going to work for them. Uh, magnetic fields. The Earth has a magnetic field that's caused by electrical current in Earth's core, and that forms a, an invisible shield, a uh, visible magnetic shield that protects the Earth from radiation from the sun, radiation from other stars, cosmic rays. That's very helpful. To, it's helpful for life. It's a design feature. And so, uh, but, but if you think about electrical current running around there, electrical current decays over time. Batteries run down. And indeed, the Earth's magnetic field has been decaying. We've been able to measure it at least since the, like the 1830s. We've been able to measure the, the decay of Earth's magnetic field. It appears to be an exponential decay where it starts out really steep and then it, it kind of, it kind of peters out over time rather gradually. The half-life's something like 1200 years. Now, we think that during the flood year, we think that plate tectonics temporarily disturbed the magnetic field because you have all kinds of motion in the mantle, and that's going to disrupt the currents. Uh, we're not sure that that's the case, but that's, that's uh, reasonable. But in terms of the energy, it's just dropping. The, the energy is just dropping because there's nothing to recharge it. And so you run the equation backwards, and the, the Earth's magnetic field would have been 20 times stronger at creation. So your compass would work really, really well at creation. But more importantly, you'd have increased protection from cosmic rays. So less disease and things of that nature. But you run it back further because it's an exponential decay. It gets really strong. And if you run it back 60,000 years, the Earth's magnetic field would be stronger than that of a neutron star, which is enough to rip the atoms of your body apart. So my point is the Earth can't be nearly even 60,000 years old. Now we're not even talking a million years. We're talking 60,000 years before the magnetic field becomes too strong for matter to exist in its normal form. And it's not just uh, the Earth. Some of the other planets of the solar system also have magnetic fields. Not all of them, but Jupiter has a whopping big magnetic field. Very powerful. It's actually uh, too strong for life even today. And so it would be, if you were come too close to Jupiter, the, it would induce currents. It would, not be, it would not be good for you. We actually have a spacecraft orbiting very close to Jupiter, and they had to design it special so that it would be protected from Jupiter's uh, powerful magnetic field. Why does it still have that magnetic field if it's billions of years old? Magnetic fields decay over time. Batteries run down. And so I would suggest to you that this is an indication that Jupiter is nowhere near billions of years old. It's thousands of years old. The strength of the magnetic field is consistent with that. The planet Uranus. Uranus, four times the size of the Earth. It's, um, and it orbits. It's kind of weird because it, it rotates. Its, its uh, rotation axis is on its side. So it, it rolls around the sun kind of. And, um, and then the magnetic field is not aligned with the rotation axis. So it would be kind of weird. So the magnetic field would wobble as the planet rotates like that. So Uranus is just really messed up on a number of levels. And, uh, but it really shouldn't have a magnetic field if it's billions of years old. A friend of mine, Russ Humphreys, who's a, a physicist and a biblical creationist like myself, he actually predicted the magnetic field of Uranus based on its biblical age of 6,000 years. 
He says, okay, based on 6,000 years, the magnetic field should have decayed to this amount. He predicted that back in 1984, before it had been measured. And then Voyager 2 flew past Uranus in 1986 and measured the magnetic field. And Dr. Humphreys was right on. The secularists were way off because they thought the magnetic field should be basically dead by now because of being billions of years old. And the fact that you can have aurora, aurora borealis, northern lights, that's what that is. That's aurora borealis. Tells you that there's still a pretty significant magnetic field, especially considering that Uranus is much further away from the sun than we are. So, and not just Uranus, but Neptune. Russ Humphreys also predicted the magnetic field of Neptune back in 84, and it was measured in 89, and Humphreys' estimate was right on, the secularists way off. See how good science starts with scripture? So it's kind of interesting. Uh, Dr. Humphrey's model can explain the magnetic field of all the planets. They're all consistent with 6,000 years. But the interesting thing about Uranus and Neptune is they had not yet been measured in 1984. when he put, The other ones had already been measured. And so he made successful predictions based on biblical creation. The recession of the moon. The moon is actually spiraling away from the Earth due to tidal forces. This is... Uh, a little bit counterintuitive to people because you think, well, gravity tends to pull things together. Well, the moon's in orbit around the Earth, and that prevents it from ever getting any closer. But uh, the the moon pulls on Earth's oceans, and that causes tidal bulges. That's what causes tides. You probably knew that the moon causes tides. But then the tide, the Earth's rotating faster than the moon orbits, and that causes the tidal bulges to get ahead of the moon. They're always ahead of it, and that and because the tidal bulge is ahead of the moon, it pulls forward on the moon. And when you pull forward on something in orbit, it moves out. It's a little counterintuitive. But when the astronauts want to go into a higher orbit, they thrust forward. And that gives them energy, and so they, they go into a higher orbit. So the moon, the moon is constantly spiraling away from the Earth. Now today, the rate is about an inch and a half a year. So you think about that. You, think, you, you can add it up and you can figure out how much the moon has moved in your lifetime. It's not a whole lot, but it's measurable. I guess we can measure it because we left reflectors on the moon when the astronauts landed there, and we can bounce lasers off of it, measure the time, and get the distance to the moon really precisely. And it is spiraling away from the Earth. We'd expect that. And if you think about it, you run the movie backwards, that means the moon would have been closer to the Earth in the past, right? And you have to do the math right, because the rate is going to increase. As the moon gets closer, the tidal bulges would be bigger, and they'd pull even harder on it, and it'd be even faster, and it'd be even bigger. And it turns out the Earth and moon dive into each other, at 1.4 to 1.5 billion years in a hypothetical past. Interesting. And that might sound like a lot. One point that, but my point is that's an upper limit on the age of the moon, isn't it? Because you can't have less distance than zero distance, right? And, of course, even before that happened, they tread each other due to tidal forces. But 1.4 is the upper limit on the age of the moon. And yet, in the secular view, the Earth and moon are supposed to be 4.5 billion years old. Problem. Because 4.5 is larger than... 1.4, right? Even the common core folks get that one. So, yeah. Okay. That's a problem. Comets are made up of icy material that orbit. They, they orbit around the sun in elliptical paths. And we mentioned this last night. They come close to the sun. The icy material is blasted away. And so comets, they just don't last millions of years. They just don't. And so my secular colleagues have said, well, there's an Oort cloud that makes new ones. Folks, there's no evidence of an Oort cloud. It's just, there's no evidence, there's no reason to believe in that. Comets are an indication of a young solar system. If we're just going to go by the evidence, they would seem to be straightforward proof of a young solar system. Very clear. And again, there's always rescuing devices, but nonetheless, they indicate youth. Spiral galaxies also indicate the youth of the universe. Spiral galaxies... So again, what you're seeing is the, the combined light of hundreds of billions of stars, 
And uh, not all galaxies are spiral, but a lot of them are. And spiral galaxies rotate differentially, meaning the inner portions rotate uh, faster than the outer portions. That is, a star here will make a loop in less time than a star out here. Okay, even if they're at the same speed, this this one has farther to go because it's a bigger it's a bigger circumference, right? And so, if you think about it, what that means is spiral galaxies will constantly twist themselves up, wouldn't they? I mean, if the stars if the stars in the core are doing this and the stars out here are doing that then that spiral structure is getting tighter and tighter and tighter over time. Isn't that right? And so I, I actually ran a computer simulation based on the measured velocities of these stars to see what it would look like if galaxies were really 10 billion years old. And the answer is the spiral structure would be gone. They would be twisted up tighter than an old phonograph record. That's how tight the spiral structure would be. And you don't see that anywhere in the universe. Spiral galaxies look like this. Now, some of them are a little tighter wrapped, but none of them are wrapped even I, I ran the simulation out only to, I only had to go to a billion years before the galaxy was twisted totally beyond recognition even by a hundred million years you didn't see spiral structure anymore it was just so twisted up and so the fact that you have spiral galaxies is an indication of the youth of the universe my secular colleagues are well aware of this they call it the spiral winding problem it's a problem for their position it's a feature for my position um, you, know, you notice too the spiral arms have kind of a bluish tinge to them that's, uh, that's true. It's because they have a higher proportion of blue stars, and blue stars challenge the evolutionary view because blue stars are the brightest stars in the universe. They, they expend a lot of energy. Now, as it happens, they're also the most massive stars, which means they have a lot of fuel available, but they use it up at an incredibly um, uh, an incredible rate. They're kind of like blue stars are kind of like the SUV of the star world. They have a big, big gas tank, but they get very poor gas mileage. And so they can't go very far in time before they, before they uh, blow up. And, and yet we find blue stars everywhere. Maximum lifetime of the hottest bluest stars would be something like a million years. We find them all over the universe. How can the universe be 10 billion years old if all of its constituents, or at least many of them, are, have to be much less than that? My secular colleagues say, well, obviously blue stars have formed recently in star-forming regions, but no one's ever seen a star form, folks. You might have heard it, you know, it's read in the newspaper. Here's, this is a star-forming region. What they actually find are blue stars, and they say, well, those are obviously recent, so they must have formed recently. But you don't see stars forming. Gas does not tend to just sort of collapse in on itself. <laughs> you know that. You didn't hold your breath when you came to this room just in case all the air went to the corner. You expect it to spread out. Gas spreads out. That's what it naturally does. And uh, normally the force of gravity in space is very meager. Now, once you, once you collapse the gas into a star, it, its own gravity will hold it together. But when it's spread out, the gravity is very meager, and it's not going to just suddenly magically collect in on itself and form a little sphere. So star formation is very problematic. I want to suggest that blue stars are just an indication that God made the universe recently with some of these blue stars uh, already in it, already there. So really, the evidence is very consistent with the biblical time scale. It's just people don't want to accept the biblical time scale, but the evidence is there. Aside from the age issue, there's another issue where people have said, well, the Bible didn't get this right, and that concerns the uniqueness of the earth. The earth really is special. It's not just another planet that's out there. God formed it to be inhabited. That is, he formed it for the purpose of housing life. And that's something that the Bible tells us in Isaiah 45:18. He didn't make the earth to be a waste place. The moon kind of is. The moon's kind of a waste place. It's desolate. But the earth God formed to be inhabited, and it has special properties that en enable life to exist on its uh, surface. 
And so when we look at Earth's neighbors, we find, I mean, I'm glad the Lord made the moon. The moon's wonderful. It's a wonderful little world, but it's not designed for life. It's a, it, the temperature difference between day and night is hundreds of degrees. There's no air on the moon, so breathing would be a problem. Uh, there's no water on the moon, so if you get thirsty, you're out of luck. There's no food on the moon. So there's just, I mean, you're, you're going to go to the moon, you're going to die, right? But when the astronauts went there, they had to bring a little bit of Earth with them. A little bit of Earth's air with them, a little bit of water and food from the Earth. And then they were only there for a short while, and they had to come back to the Earth. The moon's not designed for life. One of the astronauts who walked on its surface referred to it as a magnificent desolation. I think it's a great expression uh, for the moon. Not designed for life. Earth's neighbors. you got Venus a little closer to the sun than the Earth is. Mars a little further away. I'm glad God made these planets, but they're not designed for life. Now, some secularists thinking, well, Earth's just an accident and life is just an accident that happened to evolve on Earth, probably evolved elsewhere in space. Some thought that Venus might have life on its surface. Venus might be this wonderful tropical world with all kinds of exotic creatures uh, living on it. You'll see that in some of the older sci-fi shows. I still remember an old Outer Limits where William Shatner went to Venus and there was all these strange creatures and everything and the eerie Outer Limits music playing. Very, very fun. Uh, this, of course, was before they discovered the surface temperature of Venus is 900 degrees Fahrenheit. So uh, you're not going to find you're not going to find life on the surface. And by the way, those those Venus see, Venus is permanently enshrouded by clouds, and so that's what made it so fun as a target for life because they were free to speculate, unfettered by inconvenient data, as to what might be below the those clouds. We now those know those clouds are made of sulfuric acid type compounds. So there's just lots of wonderful ways to die on Venus. It's not a place you want to visit on your next vacation. Uh, not with not with the 900 degree surface temperature. Although there's no humidity, so it is a dry heat for whatever that's worth. But uh, we have um, we have Mars a little bit too far away from the sun. Mars is too cold. There's no liquid water on the surface. There is there is the water molecule, but it's frozen or or vapor. You don't have liquid water on the surface. It doesn't have a protective magnetic field, so you're gonna you're gonna die on Mars too. Although you'll die slower. So Mars is the better choice. Um, it'll it'll kill you it'll kill you slower. But uh, it's not designed for life. Not like the Earth is. Too cold. It's kind of like it's kind of like Goldilocks and the three bears, right? You got these ones too hot, that one too cold, that one's just right. And we'd expect that. Earth's designed for life, and that's one reason why I don't expect to find uh, life out in space. God formed the earth to be inhabited. And I'll grant the Bible doesn't say there's not ETs out there, but but nonetheless, um, there's some theological issues you'd have to think through if if you had intelligent life out in space, right? If you have um, if you have Vulcans and Klingons out there, they can't. Be, you realize they can't be saved. Because it's because we're related to Jesus that his blood on the cross can pay for our sins, right? Because he's our kinsman redeemer. But um, Lieutenant Worf's out of luck because he's a Klingon and he's not related to Jesus, so he can't be saved. Well, maybe Jesus went to the Klingon homeworld and died for them too. No, because he died once for all. He's raised incorruptible. He's never going to die again. So uh, Earth really is special, folks. It really is. It's not just another planet out there. It's a unique world. You realize God made it on day one. All the other planets are made on day four. The Hebrew word kochab for star would include planets as well. So really a special. What about the starlight issue? I want to spend the remaining time on this topic. And uh, this is the issue of how do we get light from those galaxies to Earth within the biblical time scale, right? Because there are galaxies that are very far away. And although light's very fast, light travels at 186,000 miles per second. Quick. And so it's practically, for Earth, it's practically instantaneous. But Earth's pretty small. 
once you start considering the distances to these uh, galaxies that are very far away, and they are very far away, then you'd think, well, it ought to take billions of years. As fast as light is, galaxies are even further away, such that it would take billions of years for the light to get from there to here. And it obviously has gone from there to here because we see the galaxies. So how do you explain that? And uh, there's a number of different explanations that have been proposed. I do want to point out, though, that some of the explanations that people propose really can't work logically. And I, I cover. I, I want to mention this because if I don't, people will come up and say, but have you thought of this, Dr. Lyle? And yes, we've thought of that. It doesn't work. There's a reason. Um, but I, I do have to mention these. One of them is, well, maybe the distances aren't real. Maybe the galaxies are all really close. And that's just not feasible. The, the, the methods by which we estimate distances to these galaxies are good scientific methods. They're not based on evolutionary assumptions or things like that. It's good to question some of these things and, and think now, have you made an assumption in, in, in your computation? But, but no, some of these are very simple parallax estimates, even to at least to some of the stars within our own galaxy. And even our own galaxy won't fit within 6,000 light years, which would be the limit you'd have to have if, for that to solve the starlight problem. Some people have said, well, maybe the speed of light was faster in the past. And that's a cool idea, and I'm glad people considered that. Because a lot of times, secularists will assume that rates are constant and have been constant over time, when really they're not. And we'll see some examples of that in the next presentation. But in this case, we think there are good reasons why the speed of light has always been uh, what it is today. The round-trip speed of light has always been what it is today. And it's linked in with properties of matter, for example. The ratio of electric fields to magnetic fields that makes matter possible is connected with the speed of light. So you change the speed of light very much, then matter atoms can't exist anymore. So we think there's a good reason that, that the speed of light has always been what it is today. Uh, some people have said, well, maybe the light was created already on its way, after all, God made the universe mature, and he did. He did make the universe mature in the sense of fully functioning, at least by the, by the uh, seventh day, it was fully functioning. God made Adam as an adult. He didn't need time to grow from a baby. He never was a baby, and the universe is like that. And I agree the universe is like that, but I don't think that God made the beams of light already on their way, because if you believe that God created the light in transit, it means that God created fictional images and movies of things that never happened. And I want to give you an example of this to make this clear. So here you have a supernova 1987A. So before 1987, if you took a picture of the large Magellanic Cloud, which is a nearby satellite galaxy to the Milky Way, uh, you would have seen this bright blue star right there. In 1987, in January, that star blew itself to bits. Just boom, couldn't handle the pressure and decided to sadly take his own life. And, uh, <laughs> and this is what's left today. What you're seeing here is expanding star guts, expanding out into space, okay? So, that's what you see today. Now, the interesting thing is this, this um, object is over 100, it's over 160,000 light years away. Now, a light year is a unit of distance. It's a, a, one light year is about 6 trillion miles. So when I say it's 160,000 light years away, that means it's really far away. But it also means that in, in the standard thinking, um, it would take light, it takes light one year to travel that distance, to travel a distance of one light year. And so if this is 160,000 light years away, that means the event actually happened 160,000 years ago, and the light finally reached the Earth in 1987. And that's the way most secularists think about this. You can say, well, we know there's not 160,000 years ago, because the universe isn't that old. So the way we're able to see this is God made the beam of light already on its way. Well, that means that that star never existed. It's just a picture that God made in a beam of light about 6,000 light years long that was constantly coming at us. And then it means this explosion never happened. It's just a sequence of images that God placed in a beam of light 
You see, you see what I'm saying? About, about 6,000 light years out that finally reached the earth in 1987. And, and I'm not denying that God has the power to do that. That's not the, that's not the question. Um, I, I don't think God would do that because I don't think it's consistent with his character to make our senses to be basically reliable and then create false, uh, false light images to deceive them. So if light and trans is true, then none of those things existed. And now some of you might be thinking, I don't know, I think God would make fictional images light with, with information of things that never existed. Be careful, because how do you know I'm here right now? I mean, you, uh, you, you lose contact with reality if you believe that, right? Because you, you, how do you know that God's not just making a picture of me one inch away from your eye? You say, well, we can hear you too. No problem, God's making the sound one inch away from your ear. And you're, you're actually just a head, that's all you are. You're just a head. And you see, you lose contact with reality if you believe that God would do that kind of thing. Uh, some people have proposed that time dilation is the answer. Time dilation is a real phenomenon. It turns out that time can flow at different rates under different circumstances. That is true. However, the effect is very normally very small, and so it's not going to solve the starlight issue. Here's what I think the issue is. I think it has to do with what we call the one-way speed of light and what we call synchrony conventions. Now, this is going to get a little deep, but then the, the next session will be easy, I promise. It'll be a lot easier. So stay with me, and I'll try to explain this briefly in my remaining five minutes. Cheaper socks. Okay. Um, so the, the speed of light, 186,282 miles per second, but that is a round-trip time-averaged speed, meaning the way we measure, the way we get that number is by doing a round-trip experiment. So what I could do, for example, is I could stand over here with my flashlight and a clock, okay, and then we'll build a long hallway. We'll, we'll build it 186,282 miles long. We'll pretend we have government funding. We can waste it that way. And, uh, and we'll put a mirror at the other end of it. Okay, and what I'll do is I'll shine the flashlight I'll, I'll, right at noon, right when my clock strikes noon. I'll turn, I'll turn on the flashlight for just an instant. The light will zip down that hallway, bounce off the mirror, and return back to me. And then when I see the light, when I see the reflection, I look at the clock. If I did that, it would take two seconds for me to see the reflection, amazingly. We tend to think of a reflection in a mirror as instantaneous, and it, it almost is, but not quite. It's, there's a slight delay. And so if I did that experiment, it would take two seconds for the light to travel that distance twice. So 186,002 times two divided by two, and you get the average speed of light is 186,282 miles per second. Pretty fast, okay? Now, most people assume that it took light one second to go out and one second to come back. And I couldn't blame you for assuming that because I depicted it that way in my little illustration, right? But the fact is, if I'm standing over here watching the reflection, I don't actually know when it hit the mirror. All I know is when I see the... I know when it started, because I know when I hit the flashlight. I know it started at noon. And I know I see the reflection two seconds later. But I don't actually know that it took one second to hit the mirror, do I? Hypothetically, it could be the case that it took no time to hit the mirror. Maybe it took zero to hit the mirror, and then it traveled back, and it took all two seconds to come back. Now, you see, because I'm standing here, I would see the same thing, wouldn't I? I? I send out the light at noon, and I see the light two seconds later. I don't know that it took one second to go out and one second to come back. Could have taken zero seconds to go out, two seconds to come back. Or it could be the reverse. It could have taken all two seconds to go out and no time to come back. That's possible as well, isn't it? And people say, well, why would it be different? I don't know, but the point is, I don't know that it's the same. And in science, you're not supposed to assume more than you really have to in order to be able to do science. And so I can't just assume that it's the same in both directions, because wouldn't that be nice? Uh, in fact, if, it's this, if, if this is the correct scenario, if light, when it's moving toward an observer, may, maybe just due to the nature of the universe or due to the nature of light, for whatever reason, 
If light, when it's moving toward you, takes no time, then you know what that means? It means there's no starlight problem because the light from the galaxies would be here instantaneously. The only thing we know is that a round trip speed takes time. But you don't have to get light out to the galaxies. It just has to go one way. So I'm kind of hoping that this is the answer. But of course, hoping for something doesn't make it so. Uh, and so we need to do an experiment to measure what is the one-way speed of light. To measure the speed of light in one direction, I can't use a mirror anymore because I'm just on a one-way trip. I'm now going to need a second clock. I'm going to need one clock at my location to record when the light was emitted, and then another clock at the receiving end to record when the light arrived. Okay, that makes sense, right? I did this experiment in my office. I have I don't have a long hallway, but I'm pretty good at math. I can convert, right? So I have I have the distance between my watch and there's a clock on my phone, and I and it's about five feet, and so I can I can I can do the math. And so when my when my watch struck noon, I turned on the flashlight and the light went and hit the phone. And I what I did is I, I read the time as soon as the phone was illuminated. And it said 1205. And so I said, ah, light takes five minutes. It did feel like it. It felt like it was instantaneous, but apparently light takes five minutes to travel from my watch to the phone. Is that right? That's not right, is it? Now, that really happened. It is true that when my watch said noon, I turned on the flashlight, and when the phone was illuminated, it said 12.05. But it didn't really take five minutes to get there, did it? The fact is, the, the, the clock on my phone is five minutes fast relative to my watch. You see what I'm saying? And so you can see, obviously, this is only going to work if these clocks are synchronized, if they read the same time at the same time, right? You say, well, that, that's pretty obvious. Well, we just need to make sure the clocks are synchronized. Then we know how to do that because we've seen all those old spy movies where let's get together and synchronize our watches, right? We know how to synchronize clocks. It turns out that... Um, this is hard to do when those clocks are separated by a distance. And in fact, it's not good enough for them to be approximately synchronized. They have to be exactly synchronized. Why? Because if this clock is one second fast or one second slow, it'll make the difference between the speed of light being 186, 282 divided by 2 or infinity. It makes an enormous difference. So you see my point? It's not good enough for them to be approximately synchronized. They have to be exactly synchronized. So no problem. We'll, we'll synchronize clocks. How do you synchronize clocks? Well, one way to do it is by radio transmission. There is a um, radio station in uh, Fort Collins, Colorado, that's connected to the atomic clock in Boulder. And it's constantly sending out a radio pulse. And a lot of people have clocks. I actually have one in my home that it receives that radio broadcast. And every night it synchronizes itself at midnight to the atomic clock. Pretty neat. And so they're synchronized, right? My, my clock over here is synchronized to the atomic clock. Well, not exactly, because radio is fast it's not quite instant. Radio waves take a little bit of time to get from the station in Fort Collins to my clock in, in, my, uh, in my little apartment. And I don't worry about that, the fact that it's a little bit off. It's actually a little bit behind, isn't it? But remember, from, in order to measure the speed of light, which is so fast, those two clocks have to be exactly synchronized. Close is not good enough. Hmm. So that's a problem, isn't it? Because this, this clock might be a little bit behind that one. Now, if I knew how fast radio was, and I knew the distance between, I know the distance between Fort Collins and, and, and my apartment, that I, that I know. If I knew the speed of radio, I, I could know how long it took to make that trip, and then I could subtract off that little difference, right? I could, I could compensate for it. So if only I knew the speed of radio. Do you know what the speed of radio is? Radio travels at the speed of light, which is, <laughs> which is the very thing I'm trying to measure. Oh, that's a problem, isn't it? 
We know that they travel at the same speed. If you shoot, if you shoot light and radio, it'll, they'll hit the wall at the same time. We just don't know what that time is. That's the problem. That's not going to work. Um, some people have said, well, here's what you do then. You, you, you have both clocks at the same place, and then you can synchronize them. And that's easy. That, that works, because you can see they're both reading the same time at the same time. And then you move one of them or both of them to opposite ends of the hallway. Yes? Under the assumption that they're still synchronized. There's a problem. According to Einstein, motion affects the passage of time. Now, it's a small amount, but remember, approximately synchronized is not good enough. They have to be exactly synchronized. So the very fact of moving the clock causes it to tick at a slightly different rate than the other clock. Now, fortunately, there is an equation that tells us how much time is lost or gained when a clock is moved, right? That's Einstein discovered that formula. But sadly, in that formula, is the one-way speed of light. The very thing I don't know. I hope you get the picture here. The picture that I'm, here, here's what I'm trying to show you. Apparently, it's impossible to synchronize two clocks separated by distance without already knowing the one-way speed of light in advance. And you can never measure the one-way speed of light unless you had two s clocks that were exactly synchronized separated by distance. Each one requires you to know the other one first, <laughs> which means you can never know the one-way speed of light. And so that's, at first that might seem like, well, that's a little disappointing because I was hoping that we could prove that it's instantaneous when moving towards the earth. But it turns out you don't need to because it turns out this, the one-way speed of light is actually not a property of nature. It's a convention. It's a convention. A convention is something we get to decide and, and we all agree to it and it works. Like driving on the right side of the road. That's a convention. We all agree to it and it works. As long as we all stick to that system, it works. Of course, you go to Australia, they drive on the left side of the road. And they, you know, they, they all agree to that system, that works and so on. So... The one-way speed of light's like that. You can, you can decide that it's the same in all directions, and that works. You can use that to synchronize your clocks, and then when you measure the speed of light using your synchronized clocks, you'll get that it's the same in all directions. On the other hand, if somebody from Australia comes out and says, I'm going to decide that it's instantaneous toward me, and I'm going to use that to synchronize my clocks, and then he measures the speed of light, you'll find that it's instantaneous toward me. That works too. This is called the conventionality thesis. It's something that physicists have been discussing since the time of Einstein. Einstein himself was aware of this. The fact that, that there's no objective way to synchronize two clocks. And so all you can do is choose the one-way speed of light, and then that'll tell you how to synchronize your clocks. And then when you measure the one-way speed of light, it'll be whatever you chose. And so uh, it's, it's a convention. And so I'm not going to go through all the details on this for time's sake. But um, I'm going to propose that the Bible uses what's called an anisotropic synchrony convention. Anisotropic means different in different directions. Basically, when light moves toward an observer, it's instant. And when it moves away, it's half C. And then there's an equation that gives the intermediate angles. I'm not suggesting the other system is wrong, where you make the speed of light the same in all directions. It's just a different convention. The Bible is apparently using this anisotropic synchrony convention because all ancient cultures did, by the way. In ancient times, when you saw something happen in space, that's when it happened. And that really is a very natural way of thinking, isn't it? When you see a deer on the side of the hill and it's over there eating some grass or something, you don't say to yourself, wow, I wonder how many millions of years ago that really happened. If you see something happening, that's when it happens, right? And, and I think the Bible is using that convention. And it, tur it just turns out that that is a legitimate convention in physics. Einstein wrote about that and other physicists have. John Winnie demonstrated it in... Uh, in the 1970s, he wrote two papers on the topic. So I think the, the Bible's using this anisotropic synchrony. My point is there's no starlight problem because 
when we see the light, that's when, that's when it happened. So God created the stars on day four and their light reached earth immediately on day four. It didn't take any time at all because of the way God is, is uh, marking time. He's using the ancient convention, not the more modern one. And I think that's suggested by scripture. But it says that let, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the light. Let them be for signs, seasons, days, and years. We find it's the greater light, the lesser light, the stars also. It says, and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. What was so? He made the lights and they gave light on the earth. So apparently the stars didn't take any time at all to give light on the earth. They immediately fulfilled their God-ordained rule of, of giving light on the earth. And so I, I, I hope you've seen the point of this, is that the Bible is right when it touches on any of these, these topics. And even if my explanation of distant starlight isn't right, we, we trust that God knows how to communicate, that he did what he said he did. But we do have a working model that makes sense. Nobody's been able to refute it. And so I think we have a good, uh, a good understanding of these things. Again, some of the resources. This presentation is available. Astronomy reveals creation. And I know I kind of rushed through the starlight issue a little bit because I didn't time it quite right. Sorry about that. And then we do have a book on the topic that covers most of the things I covered here, Taking Back Astronomy. shows how the evidence is consistent with creation, not a big bang or billions of years. If you want to learn how to find some of these objects we looked at, Stargazer's Guide to the Night Sky. It'll show you a lot of these things you can see in a small telescope. You just got to know where to look, and the book will tell you that. Even if you don't have a telescope, you just say, you know, what can I see naked eye? A lot. When's the next meteor shower? Well, the book will tell you. When's the next solar eclipse? It's in there. And so on, and how to look at it, and so on. Uh, if you want to deal more with the starlight issue, I, did, that's, that, I wrote this book, The Physics of Einstein, to explain the basics of physics that you need to, to really understand the starlight issue. And it, um, it's a fun resource. It's, it's written for laymen. But I do have in-depth boxes that have some of the equations. If you, if you want to go through the math, and if you want to skip the math, I won't tell anybody. That's fine. And we have DVDs as well. Created Cosmos takes you on a tour of the universe. I won't go through all these because we have before. But uh, do check these out. And don't forget to sign up also for our free monthly newsletter. And check us on the web, Biblical Science Institute. So we'll be back in 10 minutes. Is that right? 10 minutes. Okay. Thank you very much.